0: Ten times worse than you've heard. Welcome to The Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott, and he's Jeremy. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy's work, of course, is at houstonchronicle.com in Houston and in San Antonio at expressnews.com. It would be easy to forget, Jeremy, that since the last time we talked to the audience, that the attorney general of Texas has been impeached. I I was trying to think of the the timeline of what it was and and what it was, was this. The last time we talked about Paxton, he was on track to be impeached. I had almost no doubt he would be impeached. The only thing that was sort of in question was how many votes would that get in the house? And I went back and looked at my notes. And at one point I thought they might be down to about a hundred votes against Paxton. Um, that would have been the low watermark based on some of the arguments that were being made on the house floor. I know you watched all that unfold. Uh, I never had a doubt that it was more than 76 to, you know, to impeach the guy, that that was absolutely going to happen. Um, and I don't think it took any, you know, wizardry to figure that out. And, and part of what, uh, I think led to the giant number, which is 121 out of 150 votes in the house. Uh, part of it was the sort of question about leadership when you had Paxton calling the speaker a drunk as his sort of way to deflect about what's really happening with him. Uh, Ann Johnson, who's a former prosecutor from Houston, a state representative from uh, H-Town, uh, was one of the members of the committee pushing the members to impeach the guy. And she said that Paxton's attempt to block the impeachment, and you heard about this, Jeremy, that he had been uh, apparently calling members of the House, you know, to promising political retribution. Well, Johnson said that that was very telling. You know, the, the, the fact that he's over there trying to threaten members about all this means that there's probably even more smoke and more fire to what's going on uh, with this guy.
1: The last 72 hours has shown us why Ken Paxton is so desperate to keep his case in the court of public opinion, because he has no ability to win in a court of law. See, in a court of law, a judge will provide over that case and he will be treated just as any other civil or criminal defendant. Witnesses will be under oath for all the world to see. And this past Wednesday, two investigators and four career prosecutors with decades of work in public integrity and white-collar crime revealed that they had confidentially been interviewing witnesses and reviewing evidence into Attorney General Ken Paxton for months. Public integrity means looking into and prosecuting elected officials who have used their office for their own gain.
0: Jeremy, in my mind, an impeachment proceeding isn't that complicated. If you think about it in the way that you might think about a court proceeding, and again, they're, they're different, but there are some similarities. The the impeachment is, this is the easy way to think about it. The impeachment is the indictment, right? That's what a grand jury hands up. It doesn't hand down, by the way. This is a pet peeve. A grand jury hands up an indictment. um, And the argument was made on the floor of the Texas House by some Republicans, but not all. Um, Some Republicans were trying to say, well, you know, the attorney general didn't get to come in here and talk to us. He didn't get to come testify before the committee or any of that. Well, I was talking to a former prosecutor the other day, and I said, well, in what county in Texas does anybody who gets indicted by a grand jury get to go talk to the grand jury? Did you know that they can invite the person to talk to the grand jury? That's legal. But it almost never, ever happens. No. <laughs> right. Now, now, Paxton had more of a chance to talk to this grand jury than any of us if we were accused of anything and, and a grand jury indicted one of us. Uh, Paxton was invited who talked to the Appropriations Committee earlier in the year when he wanted the legislature to approve a $3.3 million settlement, taxpayer dollars, to pay off the whistleblowers in the case against him, uh, the people that he fired from his office for accusing him of, of crimes, including uh, accepting bribes and other abuses of office. Um, but Representative Brian Harrison, who's a Republican who was against the impeachment, well, he offered this convenient soundbite. The impeachment
2: proceedings themselves must be unimpeachable.
0: That has not happened here. He said that the grand jury should have basically had a trial, which is a ridiculous thing to say. It looked like the weaponization of government
2: power against a political enemy. And that's why I absolutely had to vote no.
0: He voted no because the uh, evidence was not presented uh, on the House floor, that witnesses weren't heard from, On the House floor or in the committee. Uh, But the process here, Jeremy, is and again, this shouldn't be confusing. The process here is that a trial will now happen in the Texas Senate. And just like what happened in court, the witnesses will talk during the trial. The evidence will be presented during the trial. Um, you know, and you've covered a lot of uh, you know criminal cases over the years, so have I. Uh, if there's an indictment that is long and by that I mean many pages, that just means there's lots of accusations. An indictment doesn't include evidence. That's not how it works. I remember when uh, John Wiley Price, the county commissioner in Dallas—he was indicted uh, by a federal grand jury, uh, and the—I think—I'd have to go back and check. I think the indictment was a hundred pages or something, Well, there's no evidence in there. It was just all accusations. Of different corruption, and so when you look at the fact that there are twenty articles of impeachment, it's a lot of accusations. That means, Jeremy, there'll be a lot of evidence coming up in this trial.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and and, and man, we got to give a hat tip to uh, you know Pa Ferguson. I'm sure all the readers are wondering, well, how did Pa Ferguson handle this in 1917 uh, by voting yep. to impeach Ken Paxton? Uh, Paxton becomes the you know the first statewide elected official. The only other statewide official. Ever to be voted to be impeached since you know, James Ferguson back in 1917, and, and very similar to what happened back then. You know, it's like you had the governor. You know, at that time, trying to monkey with the system, and all of a sudden he was trying to, you know, you know, pass new budgets, call a special session, trying to kind of cover his tracks and everything. Guess what? It didn't work. <laughs> he ended up getting impeached. You know, once it got to the to you know, the Senate, you know, to make that case. But the same process happened then. You know, it's like where, like the House didn't impeach the uh, the governor. They they voted to you know continue the impeachment into the you know Texas Senate to make the case. That's what's Mm -hmm. happening here. It's like it's like you know Mm -hmm. you can really kind of look at it as like the vote wasn't because we want to impeach you know Ken Paxton on anything we heard right now. They're just saying we've heard enough evidence that this can continue on to get Mm -hmm. into the Senate and we're going to go hash this thing out.
0: Right. And of course, what's the old saying about a grand jury that they, you know, that a prosecutor can get the grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. This is a giant ham sandwich. Now, I was convinced, as I mentioned, that uh, this was going to happen, that the impeachment would happen. It was interesting that nationally, you know, those who are on the outside looking in to Texas politics, Jeremy, they were surprised that this happened, that Republicans are policing their own. It's again, it's a Republican house, voting to impeach and move those articles forward to the, to the Senate, as you mentioned. Um, And overwhelmingly Democrats and Republicans joining together to do this. I was on CNN on Saturday and I told Jim Acosta, he had asked if this is going to happen. I said, well, yes, sir, he's getting indicted or he's getting, yeah, basically getting indicted, getting impeached today. And his face looked shocked, Jeremy, he couldn't believe that Republicans were going to do that. So then after the vote came down the way that it did, uh, Acosta asked me to come right back on the air. So I walked right off the house floor, And I go on CNN and they had just received at the CNN news desk. They had just received the statement from Ken Paxton, uh, who was calling everybody else crooked and corrupt. And uh, right there on everybody's TV, I was quite amused. We just got a statement from Ken Paxton, the impeached attorney general, and he says this. I am beyond grateful to have the support of millions of Texans. Uh, who recognized that what we just witnessed is illegal, unethical, and profoundly unjust. I look forward to a quick resolution in the Texas Senate, <laughs> he goes on to say, where well, I have full confidence the process will be fair and just. Uh, Scott, uh, in the last hour, you you uh, yep. predicted that this would happen. You said about 100 votes. It ended up being uh, well, over, uh, well over 100 votes, 121 votes. Um, but sure. over in the Senate, Rosa was saying it's going to take a two-thirds majority. That sounds like a tall order. Uh, especially in Texas. It is a tall order, but I'm laughing because it's very funny and ironic to hear Ken Paxton lecture anybody about ethics and integrity. He has been corrupt for a long time. This is the uh, recognition of that uh, by people in his own party. And you're right, in the Texas Senate, it's going to be uh, a higher threshold for sure. It's two thirds of those who are present. Uh, look, you think about it the way you think about the indictments and uh, you know it, the impeachments of uh, folks uh, either connected to uh, former President Trump or President Trump himself when he was uh, impeached in Washington. And it works uh, very similar to that uh, here in Texas. The House basically makes an indictment in the form of the impeachment. And then the Senate has the trial. That trial is going to be uh, something to see, Jeremy. And that was already going to be true. What's your thought?
3: Yeah, Here's the thing. It's like what makes this so much different for the people outside looking in is like they're used to Hmm. seeing, okay, the Democrats were going after Trump. You know, it's like that's what they saw happening here. But remember, the core of what's happening here with Ken Paxton is, you know, Ken Paxton had his Republican conservative Republican staff Mm -hmm. revolt on him and say, you're doing a lot of stuff we hate, you know. And then not only that, but remember, it was, you know, Paxton who moved money around in his budget despite, you know, and and hidden from the Texas Senate and the Texas House. He literally did things against the Republican leadership of the House and the Mm -hmm. Senate to move money around illegally in his office to cover Mm -hmm. other expenses. So you have a guy in Paxton who, like, this is all about Republicans saying, okay, we've had enough. This isn't the Democratic caucus saying we want to have an impeachment and we'll find, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Liz Cheney kind of be on that panel and we'll see where we go. No, this is all Republicans with some Democrats along with them to to make this case. I think that's what makes this so incredibly different. Like Paxton has burned so many Republican bridges. These aren't Democratic. He has burned Republican bridges. He's charred them completely. And now he has to walk over those to try to salvage his political career.
0: Absolutely. Now, another reason that this is going to be an incredible trial to watch, you saw the legal team that was presented this week. Am I um, wrong to say that you're understating it to call these people legendary defense attorneys from Texas? Um, Dick DeGarren and Rusty Harden will be, and if you don't know who those people are, you must not have paid attention to Texas stuff for, for almost any of your life. Um, I, I mean, you think about the kind of folks who DeGarren has defended over the years. Kay Bailey Hutchison, Tom DeLay, I was there for that trial. Um, he uh, was uh, involved in the prosecution of Robert Durst down in Galveston. Uh, he was you know, on the defense team along with uh, Mike Ramsey, who's now passed away. I believe he died in uh, 2019. Uh, D- uh, Durst, uh, you might remember, was accused of killing, uh, and chopping up his neighbor and throwing the pieces of the body in Galveston Bay. And I remember covering a, uh, it was a, a court hearing in Houston, uh, where, uh, Durst had been accused of violating the conditions of his bond. And, um, Dick DeGarren just stands there, uh, saying, and remember what, uh, Durst was actually convicted of was tampering with evidence. They didn't get him on the murder charge. It was tampering with evidence because he cut up the body. They never found the head of Morris Black, by the way. Did you know that? Yeah. The um yeah, and, and in Galveston, in Galveston, there's a there's a rock band that call themselves Morris Black's Head. So <laughs> can't make the stuff up. Dagherin said to me with a straight face, you know, just like his his uh, his blood must just uh, run cool as ice water. He says, uh, he said Robert Durst never killed anybody; just chopped him up. okay these guys can these guys can do anything these are legends when people think of the legendary defense bar in texas they're really thinking of the houston people yeah think about who all those people are jeremy yeah it's two of the ones that we mentioned who are going to work on this case but it's also you know going way back it's richard racehorse haynes guys like uh, chris tritico uh rocket rosen did you ever talk to rocket rosen no amazing um, he and Dan Cogdell is another one. He and Cogdell represented some of the survivors of the Waco siege. Okay. And I remember, uh, Rocket Rosen, it was his given name was Rocket and his mother. Uh, he said that his mother named him Rocket because he was born on the 4th of July. Well, representative Andy Murr introduced the veteran criminal defense attorneys, uh, and said that, uh, that they've got what it takes. To show that Paxton should be removed from office, he said that uh, these guys can convince the Senate to do it.
4: The facts in this case are overwhelming and conclusive, and I have full confidence in these two esteemed attorneys to present those facts fairly and to help the people of Texas see the seriousness and the magnitude of Mr. Paxton's abuses of power.
0: DeGarren, for his part, said the mission is straightforward.
5: This is not about punishing Mr. Paxton. It's about protecting the public, protecting the citizens of Texas. As a lawyer with some 58 years of trial experience, joining my colleague, Rusty Harden with a few less, but not many less, years of experience, We bring over 100 years of experience to this task and we bring it uh, gladly. I've also uh, taught uh, law school at the University of Texas for 25 of my years. And we, Rusty Hardin and I, have learned in all that time that no one wants a crook in the system.
0: DeGarren said it could not be more serious.
5: Much like what a grand jury does, the House of Representatives voted overwhelmingly to bring these 20 articles of impeachment. They're very serious. They involve dereliction of duty, bribery, abuse of public trust, retaliation, conspiracy. Misappropriation of public uh, resources and false statements by the top law enforcement um, agent of the state of Texas.
0: He said it comes down to this. The
5: people of the state of Texas are entitled to know whether
3: their top cop is a crook.
0: Jeremy, those are some pretty strong words.
3: Yeah, exactly. And and from that source, right? You know, it's not just like just right. some dude saying it. This is like mm-hmm. somebody, as he you know points out, they have a 100 years worth of <laughs> experience in the courtroom. It's like this is like if I'm Ken Paxson, you know, it's like, you know, maybe I've thought I've been Teflon for a long time because nothing mm-hmm. has brought this guy down. But I'd be a lot more nervous today than I was yesterday if I were him just hearing that whole thing.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I was mentioning uh, the defense bar in Houston. I mean, think about the evolution of the case as it's been uh, tried to be made against Paxton over the years since he was indicted um, You know, at the beginning of his uh, first term in office for securities violations. The special prosecutors who were supposed to get that to trial and, and prosecute him, also some of those Houston guys, Brian Weiss uh, and Kent Schaefer, who would be tough enough to deal with. I mean, these are, again, some of the top flight uh, you know, folks who could act as a special prosecutor. But because Paxton, you know, just refused uh, to ever go to court on that, he went from having Brian Weiss and Kent Schaefer to have to deal with to now have Dick DeGarren and Rusty Harden to have to deal with. I mean, you talk about getting a pro- nothing against those other guys, but, a, you know, a special prosecutor upgrade, Jeremy.
3: Yeah, and and and, can, and I think this is an appropriate time to, to point out that, you know, let's get back to, you know, Andrew Murr, who, like, you know, by the way, of, All things has easily the best mustache in all of the Texas legislature. There's no competition in there, (laughs) right? You know, but but his seriousness, you know, it's like, you know, in this whole thing and his matter of factness was already to me seeming like a tough, you know, battle for Ken Paxton to deal with. But now that he had his wingman. Wingmen just happen to be, you know, the two biggest names in all of, you know, the legal system in Texas. It's like, wow. And not just Texas. Yeah. Right. It's it's unbelievable. Not just Texas. Yeah, exactly. It's It's unbelievable what's coming at him now. And so I think this is the first time I've started wondering about, okay, what's Paxton's play here? Does he let this play out? Or does he just, you know, start trying to find that exit and says, that's it. You know, I'm tired of all this. I'm going to go, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. do something else on Fox News for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah, and you know, look, guys like DeGaren and Rusty Harden are incredible litigators, and of course, uh, that comes with the ability to also be a showman to a certain degree, right? You got to do that to convince a jury to to be able to tell that story, to either defend somebody or be a special prosecutor. But in my experience with Rusty Harden, and I've known these both of these guys for for about twenty of their one hundred years, um, Harden is not somebody I've ever seen be over the top with his language. You know, if, if he says something, it, it, it bears out. Whatever, it, you know, he's, he's not one uh, who's given to hyperbole. I should say it that way. And he said that the allegations against Paxton that are yet to come, that we will hear during
6: the Senate trial, will blow your mind. When you look at them, the first five involve a friend of the governor. When you talk about misuse of the, of the process and misuse of the office, you then get to the firing of employees that were dedicated, conservative members of his own party, supporters. And what he did through those uh, activities will blow your mind. So this is a way to say we're sounding the bell. We're gonna start now. Dick and I and our firms and, and the others that we've already been helping are going to be gearing up and presenting a case with the rules that are developed by the Senate. We're not gonna be obviously having contact with senators, they're the jury. But we hope and pray that this will be a process that allows the public to fully examine everything. And I promise you, it's 10 times worse than it's been public and as you think.
0: Immediately after the vote to impeach in the House, Jeremy, it was uh, tel- it was uh, mentioned I think in this uh, press conference and in a couple of other places uh, that Paxton's office immediately started reaching out to members of the Texas Senate, trying to give them documentation. There were uh, staffers who showed up at their offices uh, with reams of paper. Uh, one of the senators uh, apparently had said that the document it looked like the Texas budget. It was you know, four hundred pages, and uh, you know just trying to throw everything at the wall uh, to try to influence those senators. Of course, uh, some of the House members have used terms like jury tampering. I can tell you that it's not just the statements that the senators are making about not weighing in publicly on this. Um, it's it's not just them saying that. They're genuinely not. Um, as far as I can tell, the senators are taking that uh, oath that they're going to take very seriously uh, to try to be impartial jurors. Uh, I can think of at least three members of the Texas Senate who might need to find a way to recuse themselves, either uh, sit for the trial, but then not vote or vote present uh, at the end of this thing. I think it's going to be interesting to see what rules are, are um, you crafted uh, for this. Of course, the Texas Constitution allows the Senate to come up with their rules for how they're going to do it. Uh, I, there was uh, some speculation based on what Hardin and DeGarren had said, uh, some speculation about whether the trial would be public. That, that maybe the Senate wouldn't hold it in a way that the rest of us could watch. We'll have to watch all that very carefully. I'm not sure that they can do that, but who knows? It is the Texas Senate. They meet in private all the time to make decisions about the rest of us uh, and, and our lives, right? Uh, and so I do think in a lot of ways, you know, I, the governor hasn't weighed in on this specifically, but he did put in someone as interim AG who is known becoming is, is becoming known as Abbott's fixer, if you will. He was previously Secretary of State to kind of fix some problems over there. Now this guy, John Scott, he's over at the AG's office. And uh, there's a lot of speculation in Austin that he'll be over there cleaning house and getting rid of Paxton people. Some of those Paxton people, as you saw, took a leave of absence to go uh, be the defense attorneys for Paxton at his trial. Um, At least, as I mentioned, there are probably three senators who might have to recuse themselves. So if they do, there's this question: um, If they have to sit for the trial, the Constitution says all senators senators shall sit for the trial. But but if they can't vote, I don't you know I don't know if the crafters of the Constitution thought about an AG being married to a senator, right? That's the situation we have now. Um, it's one of the situations we have now, or that the, or the one of the senators would have been uh, you know implicated in some of the testimony. Uh, that led up to the impeachment, as another one was, or that another senator, uh, that that senator's staffer would have been the person accused of having an extramarital affair with the attorney general. So that's where I get to three senators who might not be able to weigh in on this. Here's a question. If they have to sit for the trial and they are present, but they don't vote, does that mean that the threshold for removal from office stays at 21? Or does it go down if they're sort of recusing themselves, right? If, If one senator recuses, it would stay the same at 21. But if two do, then it goes down to 20. If three do, I guess it goes down to 19. It's a whole lot that's going to have to be worked out here. But but I do think, Jeremy, bottom line, when the Senate decides what its rules are going to be for this, which is expected to happen later this month on the 20th, that will be very telling about how this is going to play out. And I should say one, one other thing, which is uh, the Senate has also said, they decided this this week, that this trial needs to start before the end of August. So what does that also mean for the legislative schedule as uh, you know as the governor considers uh, bringing legislators back to town for other things as well? There's a lot on their plate this summer.
3: Yeah. And, and remember, like there's a lot of senators who are also lawyers, and all their legal teams are lawyers, <laughs> and so they're going to have these two powerful lawyers kind of making this case against uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton. Also, remember uh, that uh, Dan Patrick doesn't have a vote in this. You know, this is one of these situations where you know this really is the Texas Senate. You know, those 31 members will decide the fate of this. And even Dan Patrick's, you know, influence on this is much less uh, than normally would be. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how this all you know, manages. Does, does Dan Patrick just sit in the chair, you know, for the length of, you know, the trial with no vote? Uh, you know, a la, I don't know, I don't even know what that would be like. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, so it's really gonna be an interesting process to see how what mm-hmm. kind of role he plays in this thing, what kind of rules are set up, how the mm-hmm. other attorneys who are also senators respond to what they hear here. So it's like it's going to be like a lot to kind of take place. And you know, here's the thing, and it's like, you know, I, I joked about Pa Ferguson earlier, but we don't have a lot of case law on this thing. We right. have not been through this process. For a statewide elected official since 1917. (laughs) Whatever records we have at this point on how to do this are really, Mm -hmm. really dusty at a time when people couldn't even drive cars necessarily everywhere they wanted to go.
0: Yeah, and uh, so there there was the the impeachment of Ferguson, which was the last statewide official. We have uh, the impeachment of a judge in in the 70s, uh, a judge from South Texas. I was told that, and I'd have to go back and check the historical record, but uh, I was told that when that impeachment played out of this judge, uh, that the lieutenant governor did preside over the trial, but there was an actual judge sitting right next to him to to, confer on different things and try to figure out how to rule on different things? That's something that we could see again? Or do they just go with the normal uh, parliamentarian that they always have there? All these are questions that are open right
3: now. Well, and and here's an interesting, you know, twist. So I looked at that, uh, that was, you know, J.P.O. Carrillo, who was, you know, ended up being impeached in that, you know, trial back in 75. You know, so I went through the the tapes on that, and you won't believe Uh who's on that committee that led the impeachment. Sanfrania Thompson. You know, she was um, she was um, in the middle. She was early into her career. She was, I think, only into her second term at that point. But there she was helping lead basically the last impeachment we have seen in the state of Texas. It's
0: incredible. Oh, well, we'll see how this plays out. And there'll there'll be a lot more to talk uh, about when it comes to all that uh, in the days, weeks and months to come. Have you ever seen a legislative session in which so many priorities just went up in flames? to the point where they might as well just not just have a special but just start over. Maybe they could just start over and say, and say hey and the governor I guess kind of did a version of this when he called for the what the what he called the first of multiple special sessions that'll be needed. Right? Why don't why doesn't he just say in his proclamation we're going to meet for five more months like there's a whole nother session because y'all didn't do this and this and this and this. And the first thing of course was what Jeremy property taxes. And this was I mean I hate to say it this way because there's a lot of people who I really enjoy and uh, like and uh, consider friends, but they're going they're going to be hit with this criticism. What kind of incompetence does it take to come into a legislative session with thirty three billion extra dollars expected in the budget and not come up with a plan for the number one campaign promise of both the governor and the lieutenant Governor, which was what? to offer property tax relief to people. Um, The governor said on Monday and Tuesday that he wanted the legislature to adopt his plan, which is to do tax compression, which, look, when you start talking about, and I had uh, a TV reporter say this to me the other day, they said, Scott, they're having such a nasty fight about such a boring topic. (laughs) I said, well, yeah, well, I mean, taxes are kind of important, though. Uh, So so look, um, compression, just means that this is the simple redneck version. It just means that the, the state writes a bigger check to school districts to cover the cost of public education to help with that so that local school districts don't have to raise taxes more. This is a way to contain property taxes, not just for homeowners, but also for businesses. Now, remember. The Senate's plan includes an increase in the homestead exemption, which remember, Jeremy, that started out as a $70,000 exemption. Yep. That was what was proposed by the Senate. Uh, and then it was like an auction. Then the, the House said, well, you know what? We'll do a $100,000 uh, exemption for homeowners. And then the Senate said, well, we'll do it too. We'll match it. And now the Senate won't back off the $100,000. So the House put the Senate in a position to only want to embrace this $100,000 exemption. Well, that sounds really good. And I would say that it's sort of the populist plan. Right, that's going to poll better. I think that I think Lieutenant Governor Patrick, who's pushing the homestead exemptions instead of just right, you know, instead of just more money for school districts, Patrick's plan is going to be more politically popular. Right, I mean, especially you know, voters uh, tend to be homeowners and vice versa. Right, and so he's trying to play to that crowd. I think if they would, if if uh, the House and Senate could agree to go back and say, hey, let's do the $70,000 exemption, which they could still do after all the drama this week, which we'll get into in just a second. They could still do that and do some tax compression. This doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing. But this week, you would have thought it was absolutely a zero-sum game that the governor and the House had to win or the Senate had to win, right? The governor issued a proclamation saying, y'all can only pass um, a bill that has to do with tax compression and nothing else, solely that. And let me tell you something, Jeremy. That is fumbling the football right out of the gate. Now, you made the point that the legislators had given more power to Abbott, which is true, right? Because now he can call them back into special sessions and he can try to dictate the terms of the deal. Um, But I remember 10 years ago, Rick Perry did something very similar with one of his special session proclamations. and I won't get into the weeds of it, but basically he was being too specific about what he was asking for traditionally, historically, and there is case law on this, that the governor can really only designate the topics. Now, that doesn't mean he can't go out and advocate for whatever plan he wants. I would add to this that it would be nice if the governor had ever said what he wanted them to do for the last six months. He never weighed in, right?
3: uh, But wait, I got to interrupt on that because like he was in September, he was telling me and I was writing stories about him preferring them go with compression as their preferred method. It's like, and but the legislature got, you know, while they both had compression in their plan, you know, it's like, yeah. like they, they, it, they, they clearly weren't bringing his idea to the forefront. You know, it's like, I think that they just gave him more compression to begin with uh, and then played around the edges. But like, it just goes to what you were saying at the beginning. How insane is this whole disagreement? Th- this is, I can't figure out how to give you the money I owe you, so I'm going to give you nothing. Because I can't figure out how to do it. It's like, so instead of giving you your $17 billion back, we're just going to hold it for additional time. That's why everybody's losing their lunch over this thing. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, this is an all Republican government, essentially, that has just been unable to figure out how to give us the money, (laughs) our overpayment of taxes back to everyone. It's the most mm. insane conversation. I don't know why any of them want this conversation. It doesn't make anybody look very good right now. And I know each thinks they have the draw. And look, there are points that mm-hmm. each one of them making that makes absolute sense. You know, Abbott's like Abbott's plan would give more money to more people overall, right? Yeah, you know, right. and you know, Dan Patrick's well, plan mm-hmm. is perfect mm-hmm. in terms of if you want to address people who are homestead homeowners. They get a little extra because they've been paying way too much. Totally makes sense on that. You know, even the appraisal cap, you know, trying to lower the appraisal cap to help businesses get some of the protections, you know, has mm-hmm. some ability to do that, even though, you know, appraisal caps really do more to shift tax burdens around than anything. But so they right. all have a point here. But the fact that they can't all get in the room and get on the same page on this is insane. It's like it is the easiest issue. It's the only issue they had to deal with in this legislative session, really. <laughs> Right. And they fumbled it. They, and that's why I wrote that, like, you know, they the legislate, the House and the Senate had all the power to negotiate something to work something out. But But the minute they don't get that done, all of a sudden, you know, the Constitution gives the governor all this crazy power, you know, in a special session that he doesn't have. Normally, so he can call them in whenever the hell they want to. When he right. wants to, he can make them do it over and over again. He can veto what mm-hmm. they come out with and just send it back. Mm-hmm. You know, he can make their lives miserable. And I kept asking the question why would Patrick and Dade feeling do this? Why would they let this happen? They, if they just come to terms, they could have sent the governor yeah. something, and he was going to sign no matter what they sent, you know? Yeah.
0: Ah, uh, probably yeah, most probably. I mean, and you know, and and like you and like you say, they had uh, you know some form of compression in all of their plans. Um, you know, was to send money back down, and of course, we have the money to do it, right? Yep. The, 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 with this record budget surplus, a lot of the talk at the beginning of the session was that at least half of the surplus would be used for "quote unquote" property tax relief. But these folks really um, were just uh, extra petty, uh, and in some ways, that's extra wonderful for us in the media to watch all this and. Sort of be fight promoters, but the the house after the governor said, "Hey, just give us a bill on tax uh, compression." The house just did that and left. Yep. And, I, and I spent two days explaining this to people that the house and senate don't work for the governor and they're independent of each other. I had some folks say, "Wait, wait a minute." People were like, "Wait, wait, if the house passed the bill, then we'll, we'll, but they left. What happens?" I'm I'm lost here. I said, "Well, the senate could pass the pass that one and send it to the governor." They're not going to, but they could do that, yep. right? So what you're going to hear here is parliamentary speak for peace out. The, <laughs> the, 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 the House the House passed what the governor asked for, and now they wanted to get the hell out of Austin. So you will hear the speaker and uh, uh, the, uh, the reading clerk in the House and Charlie Guerin, uh, who made the motion for them to just get on out of there and adjourn, as we say, sine die.
2: HCR 3 by Guerin, resolved by the House of Representatives, the Senate concurring that the first called session of the 80th legislature is authorized to adjourn, signing die May 30th, 2023, pending the receipt of messages, the signing of bills and resolutions, and the completion of administrative tasks. The chair recognizes Mr. Guerin to explain the resolution.
6: I think it explained itself. I move passage.
2: Members, the question occurs on adoption resolution. Is a record vote required by the Constitution? The clerk ring the bell. So Mr. Guerin voting aye, the speaker voting aye, Mr. Gertie is voting aye. So Ms. Theory voting aye. Have all members voted. There have been hundred forty ayes and zero nays. The resolution is adopted. Members pursuant to HCR three, Mister Guerin moves the House stands adjourned sine die, pending the receipt of messages, the signing of bills and resolutions, and completion of the administrative tax. Is there objection? The chair hears none. The House stands adjourned sine die, pending the receipt of messages, signing of bills and resolutions, and completion administrative tax.
0: I wanted you to hear how excited they were about that, Jeremy. Go ahead.
3: No, no, absolutely. I can totally see that. Um, yeah, look, you know this process is like interesting. So we get this, you know. Now that they've ditched town, right? The Senate, like you said, could just accept what they did and move it on the governor, and we all go home. Right. You know, it's like, right. but. <laughs>
0: But they're not That ain't
3: going to happen. It's like, you know, the uh, lieutenant right. governor has already, you know, said, you know, he doesn't like this plan. You know, there's no, there's no need for him to do it. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. the, the, the moral of the story is this is going to live with us for some time, y'all. <laughs> you know, Buckle in. Yeah, it is. Ending anytime soon.
0: Yeah. On this issue, the House actually did two things, essentially. One was they passed their version of it, which is just what the governor asked for. Um, The other thing they did was outright reject the Senate plan, which the Senate had voted on uh, previous to that. Uh, The Senate came right back and basically gave the governor the middle finger when he had asked for just tax compression. They went on and passed a plan anyway that also includes the $100,000 homestead exemption increase. Um, How can they do that if the governor specified that he just wants the tax compression? Well, I made this argument at quorumreport.com that the governor cannot do it that way, that he can designate the topic, but he can't tell. I mean, like you said, Jeremy, he has all these other powers. He, you know, he can bring them back You know, as many times as he wants. He can veto their stuff or sign their stuff. He can, dic- he can dictate the agenda to a great degree. But the governor can't, I would say it this way, the governor can't write the legislation in his proclamation. That's what he can't do. And that's what he tried to do on Monday, which I think made the situation even worse this week. And why it played out the way that it did. Uh, KXAN reporter Ryan Chandler asked Senator Paul Bettencourt from Houston about this standoff between the House and Senate uh, and about the idea that the governor is overstepping his bounds uh, when it comes to trying to set the agenda for the session.
7: Do you think the governor's call limiting this to compression was an effort to kind of smooth over the differences between the House and Senate and just get something done? What was that?
4: Well, I can't speak for the governor, but what there was a parliamentary inquiry on the floor and the question was, were we able to do the action that we did today? And uh, the parliamentarian and the president of the Senate were very demonstrative by saying, yes, we can. Because there's a lot of history where the governor can put things on the call, but he can't prescribe the form of the solution. And so the, the Senate president uh, had that statement and uh, Senator Hughes had all of that uh, put into the journal, which is our way to document it.
0: A lot of parliamentary speak in this edition of the show, Jeremy. But uh, here's my understanding from various sources: what might happen in the Senate? The Senate uh, can either, basically, one of two things. One of these is way more um, sort of, uh, I don't know, I don't know if "cruel" is the right word, but one of these is uh, a lot more torture for lawmakers. Uh, the, The Senate could either just reject the House plan and adjourn today. On Friday, as we are recording, they could just adjourn, sign a die like the House did, or the Senate can just stay for three more weeks. And you know what else they can do? They can pass anything that the lieutenant governor wants and ceremonially take those bills over to the House door and leave them there on the ground. That might that might be actually what happens. And, And the lieutenant governor will say, we're here passing conservative priorities. You saw where he sent a list to the governor. His, his sort of wish list for the special session the the Senate can go on and pass all that stuff and here's the thing it, it, this all comes to, it comes down to who enforces what right we, we, it's our understanding we've all taken civics lessons that the governor as you said can set the agenda he's the only one who can designate topics but what's the enforcement of that yeah really at the end of the day what the enforcement is, he would be the one to sign or veto the stuff that gets sent to his desk, right? I mean, an example would be: let's say they, um, let's say the legislature went ahead and and none of this infighting was happening; uh, they just didn't get their stuff done on time. And let me say something about that too. That I, I'm going to blame the governor for them not getting their property taxes done. In this respect, Abbott, since 2017, has been so willing to call special sessions over what we would call red meat and some things that are nonsense, a small ball issues. Um, in 17, they argued about bathroom bills and all of that. In 21, what did they argue about? They had the elections bill, but then also more critical race theory legislation, transgender athletes and whatever else. If he's always going to call and everybody expects him to call special sessions, it means that sine die isn't really a deadline. It, for, for Phelan and Patrick, they have to think of it as just another mile marker in the process, right? As if we get past the five months of the regular session, and if we don't have our stuff worked out, it doesn't really matter that much. He's going to call us back anyway over other stuff. So we'll still have more time to work on property taxes and whatever else it is. So I can't blame them completely for that. I mean, if it's always going to happen – Then it's not really a deadline. It used to be the case. And when I talk to former Republican lawmakers, they will say that, you know, years ago, let's say 10, 15 years ago, they would come to the Capitol for the regular session, try not to do too much damage and get out of here after five months. And the whole goal was not to have special sessions, right? The whole goal was to accomplish everything by the deadline, but it's not really a deadline anymore. Uh, and so they just keep on working on this stuff. And so, yeah, they'll they'll get to some property tax deal. They have to. It's the biggest – again, it's the biggest thing that Abbott and Patrick both promised on the campaign trail. But while the governor was on his voucher roadshow, at some point it became clear to us, especially to you and me, Jeremy, and other folks who cover the Capitol every day, it, it was well before the last two days of session that we figured out that Patrick and Phelan were not going to come to agreement on their own yeah. about property taxes. It's a tax. very big point. So, so right. I mean – I mean was just let me finish finish that thought. The governor could have come in at that point, maybe I don't know, a month ago, 6 weeks ago or whatever, and started to really broker some talks, almost like brokering peace talks between the house and the senate. A lot of people said to me, "Hey, look, this seems like a, such a failure to communicate." And I said, "That implies these guys ever tried to talk to each other in the first place." Yeah, exactly. Toward the end they kind of started to do that, but it was, you know, the 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 horse was out of the barn. They were never going to get together.
3: Okay. Well, and uh, clearly, people listening to this right now probably already know this, but the Texas Senate has punted to Tuesday. You know, they did not do anything with the House bill that came over today. So they just gaveled in. Okay.
0: Get, but they are going to come back on Tuesday. Yep. They are going to come back. Yeah. They're week. coming back, Well, they're probably going to do what I said then. Yep. They're probably gonna do what I said, where they would start passing a whole bunch of bills and acting yep. like the speaker is a liberal. And, so
3: let's wait till Tuesday for the next, you know, turn of this screw, this slow and boring screw into some way. <laughs> but but okay, so a lot to unpack <laughs> yeah. in what you just said, you know. So so uh, you're dead right. You can go too far in calling special sessions over and over again. You know, how do we know this? Let's go back to the Texas history books here. And then Bill Clement did this. You know, it's like you remember him back in uh, the 1980s. He kept calling mm-hmm. these guys back, and he. was – was very spiteful about it. He called them back seven times. And you know, guess what? On the seventh time, they gaveled in and they were out <laughs> the next day. You know, it's like, it's just like right. at some point you just kind of lose it if you call too many special sessions. We've had it happen throughout Texas history. But also, mm-hmm. the other point, like you said, the, the Constitution really gives the governor so much power to kind of set the agenda in the special session to a limit. <laughs> like, you know, he clearly, like, you know, again, the history books are great on this. Ann Richards and Rick Perry both tried to prescribe specifically what they wanted in a special special session call and guess mm-hmm. what? The legislators. Went on their own. It's like they're not going to paint by your numbers on this stuff. They're still getting some free flow. They are legislators. They all were elected on their own and they all think they're kind of big deals. (laughs) And so they're going to put their own imprint on mm -hmm. this. And so there's going to be like, you know, the only check on that governor's power is the legislature themselves, what they think is reasonable. Mm -hmm. So if they want to give Abbott a bill that has compression and, you know, the homestead exemption. You know, know, I'm going to sound like Dan Patrick here, uh, but he said, is the governor really going to veto that? Probably not. You know, like he doesn't want to either. And that's where like, despite all the power the constitution give these governors – Calling special sessions are just rot with problems for them, right? They, so many things yeah. can go wrong for them. So that's why governors really don't want to do this that much. You don't want mm-hmm. these hundred eighty plus other people running around the state capitol you know, when you could have the whole thing to yourself for the next year and a half, essentially. And that's what's happened. Yeah. But and and maybe the the most important point I think you made there was. The, the government's the governor's involvement in all of this stuff. It's like remember a few shows back when we were telling you all that you know Dan Patrick went full mattress Mac waving dollar bills. These guys aren't talking to each other. <laughs> yeah, right. We had you know surfboard <laughs> you know Dan uh, uh, Dade feeling and
0: Dade. you know California uh, date. Also, we everything.
3: had his you know abs on social media and so, everything. Everything was melting down. That 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 stretch it was right. clear these guys weren't communicating. With each other hardly at all over these last two years. Mm -hmm. That was an opportunity for the governor if he wanted to be the deal maker. You know, like this is a kind of a big moment in his gubernatorial legacy, right? You know, it's like he's never Mm -hmm. really been the deal maker before. But here was a chance for him to say, look, I know Dade and Dan aren't talking to each other. I can kind of maybe figure out how to land this ship. Because the one thing we all want (laughs) is to make sure, is to make sure. The people get their money back. You know, it's like this is. Li- right. You know, I, I sound like such a conservative, <laughs> like you know, Tea Party guy when I say this. But this is literally a case where we overpaid taxes, and the government owes us the money back. Essentially, and it's like this right. is our tax well, was- return. And imagine the federal government saying we're not sending you your tax return because we don't know if we want to send you to, in a check or wire transfer. Transfer or make you come pick it up somewhere. <laughs> That's basically what yeah. this argument has turned into. And the governor had a chance, you know, to like he was meeting with all these guys all the time. It was like all of mm-hmm. us in the bubble of Austin saw him having these, you know, Twitter photos of him meeting with you know Dan Patrick or Dade Phelan or sometimes both mm-hmm. of them and you know, all the different members. He was trying to show that he was more present in this legislative process. Yeah, yeah he was present. But he wasn't helping negotiate the deal that Dan Patrick and Dade Phelan can't negotiate. They literally can't negotiate this thing out now. They're irritating the hell out of one another. And there's no way to bridge that, you know, just with themselves alone. They need help. And Abbott has the chance to help. And instead of helping, I think he may have made it worse. You know, it's like by coming in and saying, all compression only, I'm going to dictate the, I'm Mm going to. Be dictator, you know, uh, Governor Abbott here. You know, it's like, I'm just going to tell you what I want you to do and don't waver. It's like, there's a, it could have been a more soft way to kind of say that. Again, I don't know what was happening behind the scene. I know the the governor mm -hmm. and the lieutenant governor spoke on Tuesday. Who knows what that Mm -hmm. conversation was like? You know, it's like, I wish I could <laughs> yeah. be in those rooms for, to tell uh, all y'all love what to I know. just heard. <laughs> it just seems like this right. whole process it would, be, would be better if they would let us in some of those meetings so that they can say, look, mm-hmm. we were very cordial to each other. We were nice. We said nice things about each other's families. Mm-hmm. And then we decided, you know, let's meet for months at a time. <laughs> and work on the biggest issue we have. It's like no, no. It's like what ended up happening is who knows. You know, did they yell at each other? Did they say, you know, okay, well, I'll call you back in the special session every thirty days for the next, you know, mm-hmm. six months, and we'll see how everybody's feeling. It was real. So
0: really clear to me by the end of the well, by the beginning of the week after it started to melt down again, um, that the the governor would have been wise to give them some time off. To, to say, hey, we're, we're going to have a special session, but let's do it. Like like the way he did in 2017 was to say, we're going to do it a few weeks from now. So everybody can have a break. Everybody can calm down. Instead, what happened earlier this week was they didn't even ha- you know, have a, a version of the same fight. They were still having the same fight they were having last yeah. week. They, they, it never stopped. He called the special session at for 9 p.m. on the day that they had already gaveled out for the regular session. And for some of the people who are involved in the legislation that's going to be filed again, because they have to start the whole process over, I know that some of the people who are you know intimately involved in getting that legislation done did not even get a heads up from the governor that he was going to do it that way. Um, and so if you're going to do that, is that the way to get the best result? I mean, if you talk about property taxes. And you mentioned people having overpaid uh, taxes in the state. Of course they have. Um, We've made the point on the show before that when you have a giant surplus as a government entity, it means you're either overtaxing your population or you're underserving those people or a mix of both. And in this case, think about why there's so much extra money coming into the state of Texas bank accounts. It's because of inflation. It's because of COVID relief money. That was coming from Washington. Um, if the sales tax had been reduced at the time that inflation was going up, there wouldn't have been as much money. Right now, the legislature wasn't in session uh, over the you know over the period we're talking about, so they didn't have the option to do that. Um, but now you have the lieutenant governor wagging his finger at the people at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. You see this? Yeah. He's tweeting out – he's tweeting out today and yesterday about how the TPPF plan is a fantasy, yeah. that it's fake and it won't work. Now, now, they, now. here's the thing about the TPPF, folks, on this ta- – and the tax policy can get complicated pretty quick, but this isn't that hard to understand. The TPPF people are arguing that tax compression is the best way to go, and they agree with the governor, and, and they argue that it's the way to eventually get rid of school district taxes locally. Now, what they mean by that is you would have to do so much tax compression that the that the state was sending money down to the school districts to pay for education. Um, well, how would that work? Well, Dan Patrick made the point that sales taxes would have to go up as much as not, the money's got to come from somewhere, right? So if it's not coming from property taxes, it would come from sales taxes. So sales taxes could go up as much as 19% to try to buy down local property taxes if you're going to do it that way and that's what uh patrick was saying is a fantasy now he was talking at the texas public policy foundation and he said that the reason that this session broke down um and that the speaker didn't have control was because the democrats are running the house that the the democratic party is in charge of the texas house of representatives that's the texas house that um Banned certain books in school libraries. That's the Texas House that banned transgender athletes from collegiate sports. That's the Texas House that voted to put uh, you know, people with more guns at schools. That's the Texas House that would not even vote on raising the age
3: yeah.
0: for the purchase of firearms, right? The Democrats are in charge of the House? Well, he says it so well that you that you have to hear how he puts all this together. When I was a senator,
4: and the blocker bill used to be 21, And we never had more than 20 Republicans, meaning the Democrats could block any bill. We would have to go up to the Democrats, even though it was 20 to 11. We'd have to go up to the Democrats and say, "Uh, can we pass our bill today? Because bills were on the list. I mean, we're in the majority, 2011. Can we pass our bill today? So what was a practice became abused. And I believe in the House now, what was a practice, bipartisanship, has been abused. And if the Republicans continue to let themselves and leadership lets the Democrats run the House, this is going to have to change. Because once we change the blocker bill where we said, you can't block us, come join us and help us, that's why we have bipartisanship on all these bills. They bring amendments. They say, yeah, you know, how about this idea, that idea? We like to, we like to get bipartisan legislation. It's stronger to send it to the House. But for most of the last two weeks, I think Joe Moody and and Chia and Trey Martinez Fisher were running the House, not the Speaker. So, yeah, I'm fed up about it.
0: It's time to call it out. I think that Joe Moody and Rafael and Chia, Trey Martinez Fisher would be shocked to learn that they are running the Texas House of Representatives, Jeremy. The same, the same legislative chamber that passed a version of a, a border protection unit to allow citizens to patrol the border. I don't think those guys are for that. And that was a watered down version <laughs> of it, by the way, after the Democrats did kill that. I, you know, one of the things that um, occurred to me is if Patrick, it, to his credit, I'm giving him a lot of credit on the show this week. Don't worry. It'll get back to normal in the next show. Yeah. Um, to his credit, he is the guy in Texas who made it a centerpiece of his campaigns, both for the Senate and for Lieutenant Governor, to change the rules in the Senate. Right. He said, we're you know, the two thirds thing is bad. And that means that Democrats have too much control, too much power. So we're going to change that. So he ran on that, and then he changed it. And people in Austin, a lot of my friends, they get very frustrated with the fact that he changed the rules. And you know, he has consolidated power in his office. So here's what the, I think the other Republican senators didn't understand when they were voting to change those rules: is it wasn't just going to make it easier to pass Republican and conservative legislation. It was going to consolidate power in the lieutenant governor's office, because it because when you had to get the permission of 21 senators, that gave more leverage to the individual senators for whatever legislation was going to come up on the Correct. floor. 21 of them had to agree, we're going to talk about this thing or we're going to talk about that thing. And over the years, Patrick has changed the rules every time that Republican uh, Republican senators maybe don't win. Remember, they changed it again. It was, uh, what was it? It went from two-thirds to three-fifths to five-ninths. <laughs> Which you five ninths? You can't even find that on a measuring
3: cup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, talking as, about like as, as everybody's fractions abilities. Come on, man. As, J- really? as John Whitmire said, don't, sir, don't have time for fractions. They- <laughs>
0: I don't, I don't know why they bother with fractions. They should just say the rule is however many Republican senators there are, that's how many it takes. Well, it, that, that's where they're so, at.
3: Right so it, it's important to point out – it's like, like remember why these rules were in place. These rules were in place because the Republicans were being run over by Democrats in the 1980s, <laughs> right? A lot of these rules that like Dan Patrick and the Republicans are upset about – Uh, are the things that like gave the republicans a voice in the government through the 1970s and 1980s it's like 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 i'm going a lot of history this week on you know yeah i think i should stop reading texas history books but like but but i'm feeling it so you can see that like this exact thing was happening the opposite way you know just in the 1980s it's like you know we've been here before it's like and everybody was Mm -hmm. fine with the blocker bill then i guess right you know because republicans had the ability to stop things that they thought were horrible you know it's like and they could do it, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like, and so now here we are. And and I'm certainly, you know, I'm sure Trey Martinez Fisher would be so stunned to find out that he could have written the entire Texas budget, uh, since yeah. he had to vote against it because <laughs> it had so much in it that he did not like, and you know, all the priorities were really, you know, far from a Democratic priority. To say that they're running the the, the Texas House, come on. I, Come I, on, just it's, yeah, right. some hyperbole. <laughs> just like okay, it just makes you roll your eyes. It's like that's not what's happening here. It's like you know they yeah. have influence, but and and it goes back to like you know, we can tie it into the attorney general, you know, in the impeachment fight, right? You know, it's like you mm-hmm. know um, yep. I have people who can back me up on this, but you know, w- but when we were you know trying to figure out how, what do you think the votes will be to impeach, I'm like, well, since it's mm-hmm. become kind of a leadership fight, it's like. I, you know, I have that at about you know one hundred and twenty to one hundred and twenty-two is what was my answer because of the fact that you take all the people who have backed Dade feeling, you know, minus some Tea Party members. You know, it's like I took out just mm-hmm. kind of an estimate, and like so, I picked one twenty-two, and like, and the rest of my staff can like it's in writing; they can show you that it's true. I'm not making this up. Yeah, but, okay, I'm,
0: look, I'm not. I'm not calling you out yet.
3: <laughs> but you know, and and the reason being is it become – these things become like leadership things. And it's like and I think that's what's yes. happened to the whole fight on both these things, right? And these when these issues, when Dan Patrick and Ken Paxton both made this a house pride issue and started attacking the speaker of the house that they voted for, you're basically mm-hmm. trying to tell them you voted for the wrong guy. And you make this a yeah. parochial fight within the chamber, right? You know, and so like, and so the House members, of course, they're gonna stand up for Dade Phelan over Ken Paxson. Of course they're gonna stand up for Dade Phelan over Dan Patrick. And that includes Democrats. Because again, they voted for Dade Phelan too. You know, it's like, and so they, right. they just both, you know, you can just see the problem here. At some point, you can't turn this into we think you were wrong for who you voted for. Now won't you back our plan? Like, what? No. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's going to, like, I can call my, you know, my sister ugly, but you sure as hell can't do it. You know, it's like, it, it's right. that whole philosophy. It, it's that kind of thing. Ken yeah, right. mm-hmm. And Ken Paxton and, you know, <laughs> D- you know, Dan Patrick have both <laughs> called Dave feeling ugly. You know, it's like, and here we are. It's like, no, you don't. You don't get to go there. Right. That's our fight. Bring it on, brother. And so where are we?
0: <laughs> yeah, right. And, and, and here's the thing. I know that there are people who listen to a discussion like this and get frustrated or they see it play out on social media and they're watching television coverage of this stuff and they think, couldn't it just be about the policy? Couldn't it just be about, you know, making the right decisions for Texans? It should be, but I'm here to tell you, in reality, what Jeremy is saying is exactly right. And it's and especially at the end of the legislative session, when egos which are large as Texas have already been bruised enough, where there are hard feelings that come into the mix, the sort of calling your family members ugly kind of stuff starts going on, and um, the 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 personalities we're talking about, which are larger than life, they can't be. They are not going to accept that they were wrong, even if it turns out they were. You know, I mean, you figure out a, a whole number of uh, legislative priorities and the way they went. You know, you start looking at this stuff and you think, man, could it could it get any uglier? And why in the world would the governor think that having them here this week would make it better (laughs) after all the nasty fights that they've had? And let me tell you something. Patrick was not done trashing the speaker specifically and the House more generally.
4: Democrats have total control of the House chamber. Total control. So we're a Republican majority state and the rules in the House are set up to allow the minority to kill bills they don't like. And it's just dysfunctional.
0: I'm going to wrap up this part of the discussion by just saying that, again, credit to Patrick for running on um, the idea of changing the rules in his campaigns. And then he changed the rules in the Senate. If his theory now is that the House rules are screwed up, he should run for the House. Which he could do, wouldn't it be great to see Dan Patrick as one of one fifty? Oh my gosh!
3: <laughs> yeah,
0: how often would Dan Patrick be on the back mic with all of his parliamentary inquiries and you know grilling of the members on the front mic? I'd I'd be interested. What's your to see point that. of order, Mister um, Patrick? <laughs> Mister Patrick, for what purpose? <laughs> parliamentary inquiry, Mister Speaker. Um, yeah, no, I think that'd be very entertaining. It'd probably be him and. Uh, Tony Tenderholt would be off in the corner talking a lot, you know, scheming different things. Uh, let's end the show here, and I'm making a, uh, an executive decision, Jeremy, that we will not have a show next week. I will be on the road visiting my daughter. I know you need a break from all this as well. Um, I want to welcome Evan Scherer, our new producer, stepping into big, big shoes. Brandon, who left us. And Maya, who left us before that, did you did you know Jeremy that this month coming up on the eighth, this this our seventh year of this show? Wow! Now I am the I am the only surviving cast member of the original cast members. It's it's gone through some different iterations, lots of different producers, different co-hosts. I can say that with you as co-host, the show has hit its stride. <laughs> I mean, in a way that in a way that it never did before. I I, I might post. On my social media, I might post the original show. It was pretty terrible compared to this, compared to where we are now. I mean, it was still listenable. It's like when I get a cigar from a, you know, like a secondhand cigar. I was like, it's still smokable. But but this, I mean, we've really, really come into our own here. And we are now award-winning. So did you see that on uh, on social media, there's an account called Three Several Days, and that's a play on something that's in the Texas Constitution. And uh, there are a lot of these sort of uh, fake accounts, um, anonymous accounts that tweet a lot about the legislature. But they were giving out uh, their awards. So because it's uh, the three several days, they were calling them the SEVI awards. Several SEVI. You get it? Okay. So we won Best Podcast. And they had a lot of different categories. We're the best podcast. I told everybody that was never in question. (laughs) but I appreciated, you know, accept, and I accepted the award on our behalf and gave all the glory to God and everything like that. Uh, Briscoe Kane, state representative from Houston, on the front microphone of the Texas House, announced some of the other winners of what I expect now will be the biennial SEVI Awards.
7: Mr. Speaker, members, it is my distinct privilege to recognize the members of the legislative community who received the prestigious 88th Session SEVI Awards. According to the Tech Stan Twitter account three several days, the following are the winners of the obscure session of Seve Awards, an award that will never be placed on our shelves, but an award that will live on the Twitter sphere as long as King Elon Musk allows it. The best art, Laura Kravitz. The most jacked, California Danes abs. Best Chief, Zach Cochran. Best point of order, Ralph The Best clapback, General Investigating Committee. Zaddy Supreme, Jeff Leach. Hub Ed Warrior, Ernest Bells. Well, just morning, that one. I was thinking, you know, whatever. It's fine. Best agency staffer, Rob Paul. Best taste in music, great Shara Eichler. Best freshman, Salman Bojani. Maybe my favorite, funniest member, Briscoe Kane.
0: You know, I think that's fair. Briscoe Kane is the funniest member of the legislature at this, at this juncture. There have been funnier members, but not now. So I think they got most of those right. I know they got the podcast right, Jeremy, because it's everybody's favorite. So they should be a subscriber, right? If you if you love the show, you just click that subscribe button. And as I understand it, it just shows up automatically on your phone or your iPad or whatever. And you can just listen to it immediately. If there is the option to automatically download the show, when you subscribe, you should do that. Uh, Jeremy's newsletter can be found on his Twitter page. You've still got the link up there. Yep. Right? For your... Uh, for the for the daily newsletter which i think is expanding soon to seven seven days a week because that expansion is coming soon for right now it's five days of the hottest scoop in the evenings that you're going to find anywhere go to at jeremy s wallace on twitter you can find the link to sign up for that. Thank you to everybody who donated to the Leukemia Lymphoma Society over the course of the fundraiser that's ending this weekend. People can still give through the weekend, and then we're going to wrap that up. But we we're pushing us past thirty thousand, and for the total effort across uh, Central Texas, is more like closer to a million dollars that was raised by those of us who were working on that. You can still donate. Uh, Scottbraddock.com is where to find that. Subscribe at QuorumReport.com, HoustonChronicle.com, and we will see you next time.